This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. It was slightly after the Churban Bias texting, no sound. And right after Churban Bias, the city of Yishalayim lay in ruins, and it was a scene that was incomprehensible. And the Gemara tells us that Rabbi Yossi was walking and he began walking amongst the Churbos, Yerushalayim. And it's not clear why, but into one of these destroyed runes, he walks in and he goes to Davin. In the midst of Davening, he realizes that Elio Hanovi, Elio Malach, was waiting for him at the door. And as he goes to leave this rune, Leo says, my son, what did you do there? Stop to Davin. Leo said, tell me, what sounds did you hear there? Says Riosi, I heard the sound of a dove cooing, cooing, crying, crying. And Leo said, you should know that it's not just now, but it's three times a day, and there's a sound that comes out from the Shekinah saying, Woe to the children, because of their sins I had to destroy my bias. I had to destroy the Beis Mikdash, I had to exile them amongst the nations. But says Elio, it's not just now, three times a day, day after day, throughout the exile, Hashem cries that cry. But not just that. When the Bnei Yisrael go into a shul and they say the word, Yehoshmei Rabba Mevorach, words we say in Kaddish, if it could be, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Menea Rosho nods his head and says, Oy Lamelech Shemakalsen Osobebeso, to the king, wow, to the king who used to have that honor in his house. Oy Lebonim, woe to the children who are exiled, Woe to the father who is exiled. And this concept is something that we're very familiar with. We say, we answer Kaddish seven times a day. And the basic theme of Kaddish and much of our davening is that the world that we live in is not the way it's supposed to be. That the world we live in is functioning in not just subpar, but not even a minuscule, not even a tiny, tiny sliver of the way it's supposed to be. And it's a concept that we ask Hashem over and over, please let your malchus be shown, and please Hashem let you be melech kol aretz. And gentlemen, here's the question. What do we lack? We live in times of unprecedented wealth, unprecedented freedom. Never in the course of history has there been this much abundance in opportunity, financial, academic capacity, freedom of religion, freedom to do what you want. We've never had it this good, and we've never had these many yeshivas, never these many mostos, never had these many chesed organizations. It would seem that we're doing phenomenally well. So what does this mean? We, we yearn for the day Hashem redeem us, and this world is just minimally functional. Hashem, when are you going to bring the real world? And that question is asked from an interesting vantage point. And to appreciate that vantage point, I'd like to share with you a thought. Imagine a five-year-old boy 
celebrated his fifth birthday in Auschwitz. He had the misfortune of being born in Poland in 1936, and when the rest of his town was taken, he was taken with them, and that's where he spent his formative years. As he looks around him, this is normal. It's normal for men to be beaten to death, and it's normal to exist on a slice of bread. It's normal for 50 men to sleep on a bunk without linens, without bedclothes. This is all he's ever experienced. It's all he ever knew, and this is normal. To tell a boy like this that there's a different world, a world where people are free, people have as much food as they want, they have toys, time to play, the boy would not even be able to relate to it, would not be able to understand it, because this is his reality. And I'm afraid that that is a little bit what we experience. We've been born in captivity. Our parents were born in captivity and our grandparents were born in captivity. And as far back as we know it, this is life. And this is as good as it gets. And I want to spend a few minutes trying to highlight what life is supposed to be like and what it's not. So let's begin. Shabbos, we're eating shalashudas. My daughter asked me if I liked a particular dish. And I said to her, I apologize, I wasn't paying attention. And it was true. I wasn't paying attention. And not because I'm such a great tzaddik, but because I didn't pay attention. But I want you to understand something. Hashem invested tremendous care and forethought into flavors, aromas, and textures, that an apple should have a crunch, an orange should have a tangy, citrusy flavor. Each element was brought into creation with extraordinary care. And each of it was done with tremendous wisdom. And so much of this world was created for one purpose, for us to enjoy. We're here for a few short years, and we're not here to enjoy the fruits of this world. This is the corridor, but Hashem is the mative. Hashem is the ultimate giver. And Hashem wants to to enjoy this short stay. And Hashem puts so many features, so many elements into this world strictly for our enjoyment. And the question is, do we enjoy them? And I want you to understand what I'm saying because I work on this. And I say a particular schmooze, I call it the orange schmooze. I discuss an orange where you peel the membrane of the orange and you have the juice sacs so that when you bite into it, you get the burst of flavor And I say the schmooze as often as I can in front of every different audience I can. Why? Because for one week after I say the schmooze, I eat an orange differently. And for one week after I say the schmooze, I actually appreciate the food that I eat. But the rest of the time, I don't. And what about sights? What about beautiful sunsets, sunrises, oceans? What about landscapes? What about an ocean? What about you scuba dive under the ocean? You see a whole new world. And you see an entire world. Most of it, all of it was created for man. And most of the beauty in the world was created for one reason, for us to enjoy. The bee is colorblind. The bee is not attracted to the sight of the flower. The bee is attracted to the smell of the pollen. But the beautiful orchids and dandelions and the beautiful, beautiful colors of the flowers and the arrangements were not made for the bee. They were made for us because we are supposed to look at it and say that's astonishing. I'm supposed to look at a tree, I'm supposed to look at an ocean, I'm supposed to look at a river and say that's beautiful and I'm supposed to enjoy it. 
And that understanding is something that's almost lacking in our world. And it's certainly not a reason for us to be mavakesh, the gula yet. But I want you to understand one simple concept. And that is, before Hashem said vayihi, there was absence of anything. If you imagine the moment before creation, if you close your eyes and imagine that moment before Hashem said it should be, and you see absolute, total absence of anything, from that, Hashem said it should be, and a hundred billion stars, a hundred billion galaxies of stars came into existence, 13 billion light years of expanse, everything that exists in this world. And everything that was brought into creation was done with great care and great forethought. When a Jew looks at a night sky, he should be amazed the size, the enormous, just the incredible complexity, the harmony, and a feeling that a Jew should have very strongly is a feeling of anger. When you read about another atheist saying the words, I guess it's just another lucky roll of the cosmic dice. <laughs> Look how it evolved. There should be a sense of anger welling in you. How dare you say that? My Creator, our God, made this world with such care and forethought for you, for you to benefit with such careful precision. And you have the audacity to deny you live in His world, in His house. My house, by the way, my backyard is a cut-through for many of the shuls. And many people walk through my backyard on Shabbos to go to this shul, to that shul, and I'm always happy to let anyone pass through my backyard. I'm fine with it. But I do have one little quirk. If I'm walking the other way, and you're walking through my backyard, and I say good Shabbos to you, I request that you at least acknowledge my existence. I do not accept that that's acceptable behavior. If you do that on the street when I say good Shabbos and you ignore me, okay, whatever. I think it's rude, you don't, whatever. But it's my backyard. I pay the taxes. I mow the lawn. Don't do that in my backyard. And gentlemen, if we could understand the audacity of someone who's breathing Hashem's air, living in Hashem's world, eating Hashem's food, existing because Hashem is keeping him in existence every moment and saying the words, I don't believe in a God. He can't be a God. Within me there should be a sense of anger. How dare you, the chutzpah. That's lacking. An appreciation of the incredible beauty, appreciation of the incredible features, an appreciation that really the world is created by Hashem, unfortunately isn't that clear to us. And if you want to understand Hashem's involvement in the world, I want you to hear one title. It's not one of the names of Hashem, it's not one of the seven names but the name Hamakom. We often refer to Hashem as the place. Why do we refer to Hashem as the place? Because if there is physicality, it was brought into existence and is kept in existence by Hashem. That means for anything to exist, it requires Hashem being there, keeping in existence. You see, we mistake our creative acts for Hashem's creative acts. If I take two pieces of wood, I take a nail and bang it together. I expect it to be there 10 years from now, 20 years from now. If I build a shed in Utah 
and I leave it for 20 years, and I come back 20 years later, I expect it to be there, a bit weathered, but still there. But that's because I created nothing. I took objects that were in existence already, reshuffled them, banged them together. I created nothing. But a yeshmi ayin creation, a from nothing, something creation, is very, very different. Before Hashem said vayhi, there was absence of physicality. And what that means in plain, simple languages, there was nothing. There were no atoms, no quarks, no molecules. There was no sand from which to bake bricks. And if you think about it, you quickly realize that creation is physically impossible. From nothing, you cannot bring something. If you have the sand, you could bake the bricks. If you have the atoms, you could build the molecules. If you have the quarks, you could build that. But if you have nothing, if there's absence of physicality, complete nothing, you can't, there's nothing to mold, nothing to bring. What do you, and when you think about that, what you then understand is Hashem's relationship to physicality. And that is that Hashem is the creator and mishava, the one who created and maintains every particle of existence. That means if there is a rock, if there is a grain of sand, it exists because Hashem created and maintains it. And if for a split second Hashem would no longer infuse energy into it, it would cease to exist. So Mr. Atheist, while you mouth those words, who's keeping your hand in existence? Who's keeping your arm? Who's keeping your leg? Forget whose world it is. Who's keeping you? And we should feel a tremendous sense of anger. The chutzpah to speak about my creator that way. But it really goes much more than just appreciating sights and flavors and appreciating how people should react. There are so many parts of this world that are hard to even hard to even fathom in terms of why they're here and why particular people were put in front of them. I love asking this question to mature people. The question I love asking is, are you rich? Are you rich? And I don't mean in terms of meaning in life and relationships. I mean wealthy. I mean, are you economically well-off, financially well-off? Are you rich? And the reason why I love asking that question is because no one, no one, no one answers yes. And I don't care from what socioeconomic level they come from. I don't care how many industries they've, they're the captain of. No one answers the question yes. And it's a very ironic <clears throat> situation. Because again, if you go back 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, and take anyone living in those times and compare them to our life, you'll see we're wealthy beyond description. My house outshines Lord Rothschild's house. Lord Rothschild, the financier of Europe in the 17th century, the Sikon, the founder of the Rothschild dynasty, his house was smaller than mine, his house was plainer than mine, and his house didn't have indoor plumbing, nor electricity, nor air conditioning, nor heating. When he got into the horse and buggy, it went... My Toyota Camry, cheap car, goes smoothly. I'm going to speak in Queens in an hour. 
It's going to be air-conditioned because the air-cushioned ride. And if you think about the luxuries, the opulence that we enjoy, it's beyond description. And take a man from 100 years ago and put him into any of our homes, and he would say, you're the wealthiest guy I've ever seen. I've never seen someone with this wealth. I, I can't even envision this kind of wealth. So how come we don't feel wealthy? How come we don't feel rich? Okay, I'm not learning, fine, but at least I got money. Why don't I at least recognize what I have? What is my problem? And if you'd like to know what the problem is, it really goes a little bit further. When I was a boy, there were people called survivors. You knew a survivor because you saw a number tattooed onto his or her forearm that was a survivor. I meet people today who are survivors, but they don't have tattoos. As a matter of fact, they're but 15, 16, or 18 years old. And I came to an interesting conclusion. They really are survivors of abuse, suffering, horrible, horrible things. The ironic part is that I know the family. And what they describe as a horrible upbringing with abusive parents wasn't that at all. And what they describe as torture to anyone else doesn't seem to be that way. When my girls were younger, I told them, if you want to earn a living today, go into the mental health field. Go into the mental health field because I guarantee, no matter what area of it, you'll have a full house. Put out your shingle and your door will be, will be knocking on your door. And the simple reality is that people today are so unwholesome, so unhappy, and there's so many issues. And I'll be honest with you, I deal with it on a regular basis. I get phone calls all the time. A small minority of the issues I let my wife know. And my wife is fond of saying, nothing shocks me anymore. Yet, each time, I manage to shock her. And I only tell her a fraction of the issues. And when you look around and you see younger and younger and younger with the type of issues and problems and people really do suffer and I'm not making light of it I'm not making light of it because their suffering is their reality and I guess the question is why? Why is it that families can't stay together? Why is it that divorce is so rampant? Why is it that there's so many issues between siblings and parents and kids and why is it that people just can't be, I don't know what's the problem? And if you'd like to know the problem, the first part of the problem, <clears throat> I have a muscle that I think well defines. Imagine there's a man <clears throat> living in Poland, a very, very wealthy industrialist, and it's 1933, and he reads about Hitler, and he reads Mein Kampf, and he sees the handwriting on the wall, and he sees this is going to be bad, very bad. And <clears throat> so he begins talking to people in his town. He says, listen, we've got to do something. We have to do something. No one listens. He tries again and again. No one listens. He gathers the town elders, the town people. No one hears him. He says, that's it. I'm not taking any chances. Deep in the woods, he begins building an underground bunker. But he's wealthy. And he builds a beautiful, beautiful edifice. All underground, all hidden with rooms and rooms and storehouses of food. And he has enough to feed hundreds of people. Years pass. 1939. The war begins, and it's not long after when his town is overrun. 
And he rushes out, come, come people, come people, come people. No one listens to him. So he realizes they're not going to listen to him. He grabs the kids, one kid, another kid, at least they're young enough, at least they'll listen to me. And he grabs 300 kids and puts them in this underground bunker. He runs back to get the last one, and he's captured. He's taken with the rest of the Jews. And these kids are underground. They're in this opulent and beautiful house with everything made for them. They can't go above ground because they'll be caught. But below ground, they have everything they need. There's not a detail they didn't think of, except one problem. The electricity is turned on in the basement at a breaker, and they don't know where it is. They don't know what it is. And so these kids live the next six years in the dark. A beautiful house, every amenity there, but pitch black. And kids begin falling, and kids begin smashing into each other. And one kid says, this is stupid, I'm not walking anymore, he starts scrolling. Other kids start doing that also. And they start picking up habits that normal kids never would pick up. If someone's not right there, his objects are stolen, no one can see anyway. And they learn habits, and they learn ways of doing things that are very, very destructive And after the war, the legs don't work quite the way they should. They really can't walk, and I believe that's an apt description of us. You see, we're in this very, very dark exile. We don't see it, we don't realize it, but it's pitch black. And we pick up so many self-destructive habits. We're engaged in so many things that are damaging to us. Every mitzvah in the Torah is for our benefit. Every avera is bad for us. And Hashem is a kindly, good God, and not just for the world to come. In this world, if you follow the Torah way, it's not just that you'll have a great world to come, but your life here is going to be austere. Quite the opposite. If you want to enjoy this world, if you want to really, really enjoy this world, follow the Torah exactly, and you'll have the maximum amount of pleasure that a human being can have. Why? Because that's what your Creator wants from you. He wants only good for you. He wants only to share with you. And the Torah way is such that it's not just you gain Olam Haba, you gain this world as well. And so many of the habits, behaviors, and reactions that we engage in are just damaging to us. Forget Hashem, forget the Torah, they're self-destructive. And you look at people and you see the unhappiness and the misery and what could they do? Brought up in the dark, It seems that crawling is a better way because you don't fall. But it really cuts deeper than that. In the United States of America today, there are tens of millions of cases of reported depression. Clinical depression. Clinical depression doesn't mean, oh, I'm down. Clinical depression means... You don't want to get out. Of, you can't get out of bed. Of the tens of millions of reported cases of depression in this country, only 16% have an attributable cause. An attributable cause is a reason why you should be depressed. If a woman was married for 45 years and she just lost her life partner, that's a very rough trauma. And it certainly makes sense why she has to pick up the pieces why she might be going through a very real funk, and it makes sense why she might be depressed. That's an attributable cause. Of the tens of millions of cases, only 16% have an attributable cause. 
Viktor Frankl was a Viennese psychiatrist. Viktor Frankl was famous in Europe, <clears throat> and uh, Viktor Frankl made an interesting discovery, not in the field of psychiatry. He discovered that he was Jewish when he was put on a train bound for Auschwitz. And he <clears throat> actually survived the camps. And after, he wrote a book. And the book is called Man in Search of Meaning. And there are two parts of the book. The first part describes his stay in Auschwitz when he tried to play psychiatrist. He tried to be dispassionate, almost to step back and look at this from a psychiatric vantage point just to analyze what was going on. It's a harrowing read, a very interesting read. But the second part describes the rest of his life. After the war, he went to the DP camps. Then he landed on these shores, and he opened his practice on the Upper East Side. He had been a world-famous psychiatrist. No sooner did he put out a shingle than his office was filled. But he describes that the patients that he was interviewing didn't fit the profile that he had ever seen before. He would do an intake interview, and he'd say, Sir, what can I do for you? Well, Doc, I'm depressed. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Is it, uh, is it your marriage? No. Is it your kids? No. Um, is it your business? No. Why are you depressed? I don't know, Doc. That's why I'm here. I'm depressed. Hmm. A woman will come in 45 years of age. <clears throat> what can I do for you, ma'am? I'm depressed. Is it your marriage? No. Your kids? No. Your bridge game? No. Why are you depressed? I don't know, Doc. That's why I'm here. Patient after patient would come in without an attributable cause, without a reason. And he had never seen this before. He had <clears throat> been practicing for decades and never experienced this. From a secular vantage point, from a psychiatric vantage point, <clears throat> he described this symptom as a lack of meaning. He says if a person has a lack in meaning in life, and they don't have a purpose, if they get up in the morning and they don't know why they're here, there's an emptiness, there's a void. You can be on top of your game, you can be making millions of dollars, and you could be a world-famous musician. It doesn't matter. There's an emptiness inside, and he claims man without meaning should be depressed, will be depressed. And Viktor Frankl got it about 50% correct. You see, Sil Sharm explains what Shlemus is. For decades, I thought Shlemus meant perfection. And I thought that was our job here, to perfect ourselves. Shem put us here imperfect, and do the mitzvahs, perfect yourself, and that's Shlemus. It took me a long, long time and a lot of reading. And beyond Mitzvah Sharm, you start reading the Derech Hashem and the other Ramchal Svarim, and you see that that's not what Shlemus means. You know what Shlemus means? Shlemus means completion. And you know what completion is? When you are complete, but a human being has needs. You need to breathe. You need food. And you also need to be dovig to cling to your creator. Why? Because that's why Hashem created you. Hashem is the mative, the ultimate giver. And all that Hashem wants is to benefit others. And the ultimate good is to cling to Hashem because that is the ultimate enjoyment the ultimate satisfaction, the greatest moment in existence. And Hashem created us with many, many needs, specifically so that we'll grow, specifically so that we should change. But the most primary, the deepest of those needs is an attachment to our Creator. 
And if you look at the world we live in, it sure does seem to add up pretty quickly. You know, when I was a boy growing up, I thought the world was wacky and wild. It turns out that the world was mighty tame. When I was a boy growing up, a man married a woman, had 1.5 kids and a dog, bought a house in a suburb with a white picket fence, and remained there until he died, basically. That is not the world that you and I live in today. And I'd like to share with you that the world has come crashing down so fast in so many ways. The family as a unit no longer exists. Divorce is way over 50%. I have a friend of mine who's a child psychiatrist. He told me, you know, it used to be in America, there were two kids and eight parents, right? Two parents had eight kids, normal. He says, when it comes to my office, it's two kids and eight parents. See, John and Sally get married. They have a kid. John and Sally get divorced. John takes one kid, Sally takes the other. They get remarried. And then that divorce happens. Then the third... By the time they get to my office, there are three or four sets of parents, step-parents, and the kid is so confused. I don't have to be a rocket scientist to tell you that it's not the best and healthiest way to bring up a child. But that's a tip of the iceberg. Without even getting into the whole alphabet and the whole silliness. Do you understand that... The world I grew up in, and again, I'm not 100 years old, but I, I definitely didn't grow up today. When I was a boy growing up, I understood you get angry at somebody, you punch them. I get it. You get very, very angry at them, you kill them. You pull out a gun, you, you're so, I'm so angry, I kill you. I get it. You didn't go into Walmart with a machine gun and mow down anyone in your sight. 3,000 people in a store and just mow down indiscriminately whoever. And I said to my wife, you know, this is crazy. She said, no, it's not. It's ideology. I said, Hashem, Yerachim. That's ideology? If I hate you because of my ideology, I kill you. I get it. That's ideology. I hate somebody, so I go into Walmart, shoot anybody? What do you like? Go into a school and just mow them down because I am a... Because what? I can't say it's sick. I can't say it's, it's disturbed. <clears throat> it's so beyond the pale you're looking at a world that has lost its grip on sanity. And if you want to know why we need Mashiach, <clears throat> for many, many reasons. Because the world we live in is not the way it's supposed to be. And it may be hard for me to illustrate this, but I'll try. <clears throat> Anche Knesagdola Davin three hours Ashman Esri, three times a day. Nevishim says, I get it. <clears throat> Before you Davin Shman Esri, you spend an hour. An hour preparing. An hour because I, little me, am going to speak to the creator of the heavens and the earth. I get it. It takes a lot of time to put your brain in the right place. And it takes a lot of time to really get it that I am going to converse with Hashem right here. Not up there in the sky. Can you hear me? Right here. Little me speaking to Hashem. It takes a long time to get your brain to get, I get it. Why they daven for an hour? I also understand. There's a lot to ask for. Hashem has got more money than Bill Gates, more power than Donald Trump, and Hashem is very kind and giving, and there's a lot to ask for, so I understand why the hour davening. But why the hour after? They, daven, they prepare for an hour, daven for an hour, and then an hour after. What do you need the hour after for? And you look at Nefesh Chaim, and he explains because it was so difficult to come back down to earth. 
They were dovik to the Shekhinah. They were there with Hashem. And to come back down was so difficult, was so hard, it took them an hour to pry themselves away. What we yearn for more than anything else is something that's so deep within us, to be close to Hashem, to daven, to actually recognize Hashem's presence, to wake up in the morning and say, wow, Hashem, you created me, thank you. Let me go, let me change, let me accomplish. Hashem, I recognize you created me for one reason, to give to me. And you gave me this opportunity called life. If I change and I grow, I become forever what I'm destined to be. And it's difficult to describe what life is supposed to be like. And the 16 brachas that we say in the morning are supposed to be an outpouring of emotion. Hashem, thank you. Ears with which to hear, eyes with which to see, mobility, legs. <clears throat> Look at the riches that I have. Psukhiti Zimra is supposed to be singing out Shir V'Shevach, recognizing Hashem's dominion, and recognizing Hashem's control over everything, Hashem's involvement in everything. And once you get past Baruch Hu, you should be in the upper, upper worlds, and describing what happens in the Malachim, and groups and groups of Malachim, who gets to say what and when, and what right they have and why, and how some groups of Malachim wait. Once a week they get to say Shira, some groups once a year, some groups once every 10 years, and their entire legions, legions and legions of malachim, they get the opportunity to sing Shira to Hashem once every 500 years. And little me, repeating those words, little me, imitating, pretending as if I'm saying Kadosh, 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 as if I'm singing Shira. And then Stachman Esrei, where I converse to the creator of the heavens and the earth. And I get to ask for anything that I need, anything that I want. I won't be granted everything because many things won't be necessarily good for me. But I get to ask, and more than anything, I get to cling, I get to be dovik. That's what life is supposed to be like. Life is supposed to be happy and beautiful. Hashem created a world with such wisdom, care, and forethought. And the simple reality is that the world we live in is broken. And I work on these things. I'm not callous. And I've been working for 30 years. And I've been saying that orange moves for 20 years. And I wrote it, and I discussed it, and I do it, and I still forget it. Why? Because there's Novocaine in my heart. Because it's a very, very dark, dark, dark gullus. And it's very, very difficult to see Hashem. We say that in benching, certainly every Shabbos. When Hashem returns us to Sion, we will be like dreamers. We will look back at the exile, look back at a long bit of gullus, and we'll look back at it as if it's a dream. And Rav Yonason Eifshit says, do you know what that means? He says, when you're asleep, you're basically dead. When you awaken, your eyes open and you're awake. We're dead. We're one-sixtieth alive now. And we feel things one-sixtieth as much as we can. And we experience things one-sixtieth as much as they're accessible and available. We're dead, asleep. Hayinu kecholmim, when Hashem brings Mashiach, our eyes open and suddenly I'm alive. I begin experiencing life as it's supposed to be.
And if you don't know why we need Mashiach, and if you don't know why this gullus has to end, just look around at the pain, the suffering, and it's acute, and it's real. And it's something that has vanished. I believe maybe vanished until Mashiach comes. That is something called, and it's a strange word, excuse me for saying it here, I'm not sure I know how to spell it, but the word is happiness. Happiness, ne'elam, disappeared. Walk down a street, I'll give you a sociological challenge. Walk down Fifth Avenue the wrong way. You ever notice like a mob of people, they'll mow you down? Identify one face smiling. You'll see faces, many faces, many, many, many faces. I challenge you to find me one of those faces smiling. I'm busy, I'm doing... Yeah, you're busy. You're distracted. You're so distracted, you don't even know that you're distracted. Even when you put the iPhone down, even when you look another human being in the eyes, you're not there. You're not present. And I hope we're 60 is alive. I'm not sure. But if you want to know what we're mispalo for, when we say the words, Yiskadel v'yiskadeh Shemei Rabbah, Shemei, your great name, and be increased and be much more manifest, much more revealed, we yearn for the time when every human being will see Hashem right there. As I see this object is solid and palpable, it's here, I see Hashem right there, and every human being gets it. Every atheist runs for cover. What was I thinking? What was my pride? Isn't it so obvious, so clear? And every human being understands that Hashem is the ultimate benefiter. Hashem is the ultimate mate if it wants to give and give and only give. And every human being understands that what Hashem wants from us is only the best. And life at that moment and from that moment on is vastly different than it is now. I think what Rabbi Yossi was hearing was the pain of the Shekhinah. And I want to close with one last observation. You ever notice that Kaddish is in Aramaic? Rather unusual. <clears throat> written by Anshe Knesset Shimon Eser is written in Hebrew. Why is Kaddish written in Aramaic? If you look in the Mepharshim, you look in the Torah, you look in the Prisha, <clears throat> you'll see exactly why. Do you remember the Gemara? <clears throat> the Gemara says that when Hashem <clears throat> hears the Klaes will go into Shul, and they say the words, Hashem, may your great name be blessed and increased. May your sovereignty return again. Hashem nods his head and says, Oh, woe to the king. They used to sing those praises in his house. Woe to the father who had to exile his sons. And woe to the sons who were exiled. And says the Torah, Don't you realize the Shekinah Hashem, if it could be, has pain. Very real pain. Because gentlemen, as much as you are concerned for your benefit, your creator is more concerned. As much as you want your betterment, Hashem wants it even more. And as much as you love you, Hashem loves you 10,000, 10,000, 10,000 times more. And the Chavos of Alves explains, take the most generous, magnanimous, merciful human being you've ever met. Take Avram Avinu. Multiply that unbridled love by 10,000, 10,000, 10,000 times. You don't even have an inkling of the love that Hashem has for any one of His creations. 
And if we sit on the floor on Tishabov and feel the pain of our people, we look back on 2,000 years of bloodshed and torture, and we look back at nowadays when we're not bleeding on the outside, but we sure are bleeding on the inside. And we feel that pain, no one understands, it's nothing compared to the pain that Hashem has, because we forget, we're spaced out. I don't feel your pain, I barely feel mine. But Hashem doesn't forget, Hashem doesn't pop in and out of consciousness, Hashem doesn't go to sleep. Hashem feels the pain, feels the pain, feels the pain. And the preacher says, do you know why Chazal said to say it in Aramaic? Because if the Malachim heard those words, they'd be aghast. For whatever reason, the Malachim are not privy to Aramaic. <clears throat> Chazal wrote Kaddish in Aramaic so the Malachim shouldn't hear. Because if they heard these words, and via these words saw the pain that the Shekhinah and that Hashem was having, there'd be a kitrud. Says the preacher, they would say, Bozazim, you fools! Why are you causing Hashem such pain? How dare you? And it would be a catastrophe. We don't realize it. We don't see it, Hashem's pain. It's my pain. It's not even my pain. I'm spaced out to it. I'm so depressed and so distracted that I don't even realize it. Well, my friends, that is a story. A little bit like that five-year-old brought up... <clears throat> In Auschwitz, we experience this. It's a whole reality. Everything I've ever seen is this. So it looks normal. But I'm here to tell you it's not normal. You're supposed to be happy and enjoy flavors and aromas and sights. You're supposed to look at this beautiful world and say, Wow, my Rabbu, my Hashem, you created all of it for man. And so much of it for me to enjoy. Thank you. And you're supposed to feel rich, phenomenally wealthy. You're supposed to be happy. You're supposed to count your blessings daily. And more than anything, you're supposed to be dovic to Hashem, cling to Hashem, and feel a connection, a closeness, and you're nothing more than that. Hashem grant us that this be the last tishba that we sit on the floor. The next one be in Yishlaim HaBanuyah. I'll pick it up tomorrow. I do, but if I could... You need it with you on the the next... No, no, pick it up tomorrow. It's on my phone now. That's on my phone, though. That's fine. Get your keys. My keys, I have you. Yeah, I think downstairs. I need one thing. Thank you.
You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.